Hello and welcome to the Rights Collective podcast, a place where we'll explore the distinct and subtle ways that gendered and other forms of inequality manifest within the British South Asian diaspora. With this podcast, we hope to vocalise the lived experiences within our communities while inviting dialogue with those who engage with it. This season, we'll be focusing on how our identities have been shaped by our culture, religion, gender, sexuality, upbringing and more. Through interviews with guests from the diaspora, we'll gain an insight on the diverse identities within our communities and learn how others have balanced the intersecting and perhaps conflicting aspects. A quick disclaimer before we start. The audio for this episode may sound a little muffled at some points during the discussion. This is due to problems with internet connections and social distance recording. Despite this, the conversation is still engaging and informative, so we've decided to share it with you anyway. It should still be easy to follow, and we hope you enjoy it. My name is Chandrima, and I'm really excited to have the fabulous Shani Thanda with us today. Shani is the founder of the Asian Women's Festival and Diversibility UK. She is one of the foremost disability advocates in the country. And I'm really excited to chat with her on this podcast episode. So thanks so much, Shani, for agreeing to do this interview with us. We're all very excited to have you on the podcast today. Just to start things off, maybe you can give us a little bit of a background about the amazing work that you've been doing around disability and also around representation for South Asian women and maybe a little bit of background about where you grew up, where you came from and so on. Sure, yeah. So thank you for having me. Um, it's a real honour to be, to be part of this. So I was born in the West Midlands in the UK. I'm a very proud Bronnie. You're a Bronnie from Birmingham. Yeah, I was born into a big South Asian community and quite strict family. I have an older sister and a younger brother. Yeah, I think growing up we were we were a very sociable family, you know, we'd always have either people over, we'd be out. Um, so I've always been a very sociable person. Um, and when I was born, I was born with a rare genetic condition called osteogenesis imperfecta. It's more commonly known as brittle bone disease. Um, so that meant life was a little bit different for me. But I have a short stature of three foot ten. So I experienced the world in a different way to how others do, but I think it's given me a really unique perspective in life and, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, but what it's also given me is, is the, uh, you know, the power and the drive to be an advocate. So I feel very passionately about injustice and um, I, I do a lot around disability rights advocacy, um, talking about how we need diversity in the conversation of disability. And I also um, am very passionate about raising the voices of South Asian women. So I founded the the, the Asian Women Festival as well. Um, so yeah, that's just a little bit about me. Thank you. That's that's really awesome. You said that you grew up in a very sociable family, and you had like a Sikh background as well. The fact that you had a brittle bones dis- disease, and as you mentioned, it a shorter stature. And we know that how like so so much of aesthetic pressure is placed on people who are who are born or assigned female at birth. Did all of those factors ever affect the way your family or your social circle growing up saw you or the way you interacted with them at all? 
Yeah, I think yes and no. So my dad was actually born in India and came to the UK uh, as a young child himself. And my mum was born here in the UK. So they're both Punjabi, both speak. Um, but because of, I guess, their upbringings, they both have very different views. That's been interesting to navigate. Uh, but I think, yeah, as you mentioned, there's so many different layers to my personality and so many different identities. Um, and unfortunately, disabilities still faces a further sense of stigma in, in Asian communities. So I think that was where, I guess, I was met with barriers. But I don't think I had any sort of barriers because of my gender, my family, um, you know, a very open-minded and seeking, but is based on equality. So, yeah, I think coming back to the, to the disability lens, I remember, you know, people in the wider community just not having the same um, aspirations for me as, as other people. So they, they just expect lower things of me. Um, yeah, I remember, you know, it was quite difficult when I wanted to learn how to drive. I don't think my family were ready to give me that freedom and you know they're like well what if something happens to you I think it's been a really interesting road to navigate um, and a hard one you know not not only do I find challenges you know from a societal perspective but having them culturally as well is difficult but yeah I think I think what people would say is that I've, I've educated them you know I had to educate my parents my family the community so yeah but but and, and, and on the other hand I think it gave me motivation to prove to people you know don't have don't accept such low things of me and you know this is what I can actually do. I know that uh, from reading about you that you had a lot of job applications that were rejected and you only found a sea change in the way employment saw you once you didn't declare your condition. Well yeah. is there any other ways that you see that the world has perceived you as different because of, you know, your condition, as you say, like just not physically, but... I think that's a really interesting question because if I'm ever in a situation where I feel that I have been treated differently, I have to figure out why, what part of the characteristic is it? Is it the fact that I'm Indian? Is it the fact that I have a visible condition? Or is it the fact that I'm a woman? Or is it none of those factors and is it just something else? Um, so that's the first thing that enters my head. It's like, why? What part of my identity or characteristic is 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 this a re- is this a result of? Um, and it's exhausting, to be honest, uh, to always have to think like that and um, to identify, you know, with so many um, characteristics. It, it, while I love it, you know, I love my culture. I would never not be three foot ten. I love it now. It's who I am. It, it's also exhausting as well because I'm a constant, I'm a constant advocate for disability, whether I like it or not, because I look very different. Um, but I think for me, the main points that I think that need to change is we we need accurate representation and portrayal of people's stories, disabled people and everybody else. And we're not getting that at the moment, and that's why, as a society, we have such a negative. Um, perception of disability and it's why people treat disabled people very differently that they're they're the world's mar- largest marginalized and that's not ever going to change if we don't change you know our approach to how we think about disability I'm not disabled 24 7 and that's what people don't understand so I think definitely I think brands and businesses have a huge role to play in changing that narrative um, being more representative, you know, it wasn't until 
I was on my own TV screen, did I see a woman of colour who had a condition being represented? Now, I fought really hard for that representation and I fought very hard to get seats at tables where they didn't want somebody like me or they didn't, or they didn't really consider that my voice was needed. It's been challenging, but I'm glad that I've been able to make some change and I've just helped being able to change the narrative and, and help be part of that representation. I mean, you've done a fantastic job, like with uh, the diversity card um, for people who don't know, this is the UK's first official discount card for disabled people because uh, there are many financial pressures that people encounter who live with conditions and this card gives a discount. But I mean, even with this amazing work, like we see the success stories, like I can't imagine what kind of a toll it has on you mental health wise. And how do you, how did you cope with that? I think living with a condition such as mine, which is very unpredictable. Um, you know, I broke my legs uh, six times by the age of 14. Um, so brittle bones, um, the characteristic of that condition is you just break without any trauma. So um, my childhood was very unpredictable, but it also made me very resilient. And the condition makes me very resilient and, you know, and also a good problem solver. So these two skills, which so many other disabled people have, are being massively overlooked. But I think that has really helped me to, and motivated me to want to do all the things that I want to do. Um, and I think also growing up, my mom was a huge factor in this, whereby she didn't treat me any differently. So, you know, even when my leg was broken and I was in plaster, she'd still give me a pile of laundry and be like, you're not getting away with the chores, you know, what's wrong with your arms, what's wrong with your hands? So I, you know, if there's one thing that I could ever thank my mum for the most, it was that attitude in life. Um, you know, she really instilled in me that your life's not going to be easy. Nobody's life is easy. But because of certain circumstances, it, it might be a lot harder. So that's always been my outlook in life as well. So all, all these strategies have really helped me. Uh, but also, I'm, I'm just very motivated by the fact that I have the power to change things. I have the, the power to change the narrative. And I have the power to bring people together and and finally get their voice heard do you ever find that um because of course you seem very motivated and you are an advocate and that is something that i'm when i'm listening to you i feel personally inspired by honestly um but does it ever get hard to always be that person who is powerful is motivated knows what to do does that ever get difficult at all or do you have it does, yeah and with it comes huge responsibility so at the moment we're um gearing up to launch uh, diversity um hopefully in the next couple of months fingers crossed you know it, all the tech stuff goes well but you know there's there's not one day that goes by where someone doesn't contact me and say you don't know how much this is going to change my life so from lots of different angles, I think, yeah, it, it comes with a huge responsibility and it, it can be exhausting to do so many things. And I think especially when, you know, you're giving your own personal story or you're giving your own version of events and energy that, that is, you know, it can be tiring. So I think what, what um, 
the experience of lockdown has taught me is to be um, more kind to myself and to take out that time that I need. Whereas before lockdown, you know, um, I've never, I've never sort of enjoyed where I live so much, if that makes sense. I've, I never had the time to enjoy those little things in life because I was always busy, always doing something. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, it's a definite um, case of learning how to balance everything. Wow, and it sounds like, you know, you've things that you've said, like about learning to be kind to yourself, things that I'm sort of trying to figure out myself as I go on. Um, you mentioned that your mum uh, never treated you differently and she just gave you the laundry even when you had a broken leg. Um, but then you also said that people outside your family circle treated you differently. When did the penny drop for you that like they were treating you differently because of your condition because I'm sure you didn't grow up assuming that this was something that you were going to be treated differently for. Yeah. I think it's when I was in my late, mid to late teens actually. So I felt like I kept getting treated as a a child, you know, when I was now at a time where I was, you know, leaving secondary school and I was going to college and learning how to drive, just doing what an average 16 year old person would be doing in the UK probably um and yeah it would just be met with a lot of shock a lot of surprise you know and I remember when I graduated from uni actually people were shocked that I wanted to even go to university um you know some of the comments I had was well you know you don't have to work you can just sit at home and benefit that that's that's the mentality that some people have um and you know luckily it wasn't my mentality and it wasn't the mentality of my family um so yeah i, th- I think that that's when i realized that wow people really expect different things from me and if they were talking about their own children or anyone else in their family they probably wouldn't have that same approach um and i'm, I'm sure you can relate you know being south asian there's a lot of pressure growing up as a child to have this done by this age, to be married by this age, to have this many kids at this age. But what happens and how do you feel if you don't tick any of those boxes? Maybe because you don't want to, maybe because you can't, you know, no one ever talks about that aspect of it. Um, so yeah, it's a lot, a lot of pressure. Did you feel that that pressure, you know, getting a job, getting an education, getting married, etc., that did you feel left out when that pressure was put on maybe your other peers, friends? I don't know if you had friends who grew up South Asian as well, and you saw that they were getting pressured for these things, but you weren't, and then you found, realized, well, it's probably because people see me differently. Was that? Yeah, I think, I think mainly with the marriage topic. Um, so for sure, I mean, when a girl is born in the South Asian community, everyone is talking about marrying her off straight away right like the day she's born um hopefully it's changing now but i'm 32 so that that happened in my lifetime um so i think that's the only time where i've probably ever felt ever been able to make i've been made to feel left out um but on the other hand i see a positive in that as well like i don't want to be pressured to do that like if I do something, I'm gonna do it anyway. My family know that. Like they know me now. I'm gonna just go and go off and do what I want to do. Um. So on one hand, like yes, 
I, I have noticed it with that with that topic. But then on the other hand, I'm also probably one of very few South Asian women that hasn't had that pressure, which I also appreciate. So again, it's looking at looking at both aspects. And then in terms of working in education, those are the things that I always wanted to do anyway. So, um, you know, regardless if someone didn't want me to do it, I was going to go and do that anyway. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's so interesting how I think um, culture plays a, a huge role in your life, your upbringing, your outlook, even if you don't consider yourself to be hugely, you know, cultural or even religion, I could say the same for religion, but it does play a huge role in shaping you as a person and your thoughts and how you're made to feel. So would you say that growing up um, in a Sikh household or a British South Asian family, like, would you say that that shaped, especially with your religion, would, did it shape the way you've seen yourself in, in any way or were you not very religious at all? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, so I was brought up in a, um, a devout Sikh household and just, um, you know, Sikhism itself is a beautiful religion and it's taught me so much, but it's also shaped me as a person. It's obviously shaped um, how my parents brought up their children as well. Um, and I think what I really appreciate in the values of and the ethos of, of Sikhism is equality um, and you know how whoever you are whatever you are whatever gender what you know whatever um it, it doesn't matter equality is first and we're one human race and you know with, with everything that's going on in the world at the moment especially you know with all the heightened awareness around black lives matter i think that's the the main thing that's coming out at the moment equality we're one human race um so that's actually helped me um as a person to accept the fact that I have a condition, to accept the fact that I will always be and look different, um, because there's lots of people that go through life and they don't accept these things, and they have, you know, body, um, body image issues. They have some confidence issues. People with and without disabilities. So I think all of those factors and influences they have massively helped me, um, and. You know this. You know I love I love being Indian. I love being South Asian. I think there's so many positives. I love my culture and all the things that come come with it. But that you know I'm also always for speaking about the things that aren't great about it as well. What are and some of the things? What are some of the things that you think um, are most urgent around the conversation around disability in? Um, either Sikh or South Asian culture, I know it's not very well spoken of. Yeah, I think definitely, I think probably a lot of, I think, minority communities, disabilities seen as, you know, could be shame, stigma, um, because there's so many different um, explanations that people have as to why someone is, is disabled. So in Sikhism, for example, um, if you're born with a disability, you've done something bad in your past life. And I've actually had people say that to me and it didn't sit well. Like, yes, I consider myself to be Sikh. Yes, I was brought up in a, a Sikh household. But I like, what if I don't believe in past lives and all of a sudden somebody, um, someone's putting guilt on me? They're, it's almost like they're putting their guilt on me. And it's like, well, I don't know if I believe in that. And now all of a sudden I feel burdened with this, with this 
notion that I did something bad in my past life. And that's really hard to live with. Um, but also, as a disabled person, or, or as me, not just as a disabled person, I, I guess at a young age, when I started to get go out on my own, you know, at the age of 16, when I was going to college, I still learned that you just can't um, listen to every, everything that everyone says. You have to have some sort of mechanism to just get on with your life and because if i did if i did think about what other people thought or what or listen to what other people said then i wouldn't want to leave my house you know people stare at me take photos of me make videos of me walk down the street just going about my daily life uh, and you know that is enough to to make people feel very uncomfortable but unfortunately I'm not, I'm not, my height's not ever going to change and it will always be a point of fascination for people. So again, that's why we need to change narrative of disability. That's horrible. Like, um, I want to say I'm surprised that people do it, but I'm not, but I'm still yeah. horrified that this, this was happening to you. A good friend of mine also um, has a condition that, you know, people term as disability and she has always told me that she's really frustrated with the hero portrayal of uh, disabled people like people saying oh you're so strong and I can't believe you've done as whatever you've done and you've gotten gone to college like what's your stance on that she finds she says she finds it very tiring I totally agree you know people I don't know just come up to me and say oh you're such an inspiration and I'm like I know they mean it from a really nice place but you know brushing my teeth doesn't make me an inspiration do you know what I mean it's it's that like if I've done something inspirational then yeah fine I'll take that compliment I think people see vulnerability and think oh wow that's not me I really I really think that and I think it also makes people realize how how much in a privileged position that they are totally I'm with your friend on that it really really annoys me um but that's just another quirk of being different, I guess. Yes, this sort of ties into the whole thing that people see you as your identity instead of an individual human person. And somehow these things take away from the humanity. of yeah. yeah. And that's what I was thinking when you were saying that people were taking videos of you. And yeah, I get the whole being different part, but you know that's it sounds just so bad and that's it's actually worse when i go to india it's it's even worse there um and yes i know cultures are different um but it's yeah and i i love to travel i um i really have traveled extensively and what i enjoy is seeing how different cultures react to me and uh, my condition and you know people are always curious regardless um but yeah so when I traveled to like places like Thailand and stuff I didn't get any of that but in India like cameras were like this in my face it was just yeah it was just a whole different way of life how did you deal with that did you were you did you tell people to back off or yeah yeah absolutely um but you know it depending on what i find is if i'm on my own it happens a lot more but if i'm with other people it happens a little less um and and also especially in india actually um if if let's say i'm the one paying for something um and you know i'm giving 
my money or my card over, they'll always talk to the person with me rather than, and I know that happens here, but it, it happened constantly there. Um, and I felt like, why, why? Like, I'm talking to you, I'm paying, talk to me. But I think also it had a lot to do, um, yeah, around culture, around how much, um, I guess, how much um, freedom women have in some parts of India as well, because I know that's very different. Um, and I, I realised that when I travelled around India as well. Um, but I know that that happens here in the UK to a lot of my friends. Um, so, yeah. You know, it's definitely been something that's happened to me in India that when I've paid for something, if I've been with a man, then they address the man. But yeah, yeah totally relate to that. You've got to smash that patriarchy. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, but when do you make the, like, because it's become such an ongoing conversation and of course you're doing more like institutional policy kind of changes, like how do you strike the balance between advocating for yourself and each of these small little microaggressions? That's exhausting, but and also like, but also trying to conserve your energy so that you can make real institutional change. How do you strike yeah. that balance? Ah, oh, that's such a good. It's such a good question, and I'm still learning. Um, so I think, as I mentioned earlier, like I, whether I like it or not, I've, I've always been an advocate, or I guess a source of an example of someone who who lives with a condition um and whether i like it or not people come up to me in the street and ask me questions really also personal questions as well that you wouldn't dream of asking other people um i've even had people ask me my life expectancy like why would you ask somebody that and and let, i don't have a terminal condition but if i did and i said oh yeah i've got three months to live what is that person going to do with that piece of information? Like, it's so unnecessary. But I feel like um, certain people think that they have a pass to ask anything because I look different. Um, so, yeah, I think whether I like it or not, that, that's just what it is. And if I constantly rejected it, I think it would make me a really angry person. And that isn't me. But what I realised was is that when you are different, it's easier to make a difference. And with my upbringing... Um, uh, so, as you may know, so Sikhs are a minority in India, they face so much injustice. So, I was brought up with that going on in the background um, as well. So, fighting for causes and advocacy has been part of, of my um, childhood, if that makes sense, because of all the injustices that, that were and are still happening to Sikhs. So, that was my sort of example, I think, growing up. So, I've I've sort of not known any different. Like, I've, I've, and, 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 you know, we've always been taught in my family to, and siblings to help people where you can, you know, thereby selfless service, it's, it's doing charity. Um, and I feel like a lot of that comes into what I'm doing. But this is what I'm truly passionate about. And I can't really see myself doing anything else. Like, and now I've returned that passion into a career which I'm very thankful for because I know many people um, aren't, you know, aren't or for whatever reason haven't been able to do that. Um, so, yeah, I'm very, very fortunate that I can really live my purpose and my passion and hopefully make some change and hopefully help people. I really hope so too. I mean, that sounds like a dream, right? To be able to have the job you want. But yeah. Be your passion. 
Um, you mentioned uh, about the discrimination that Sikh and other minority religions in India face. Um, has that discrimination sort of translated on into the South Asian community in the UK? I mean, I'm, I'm not from the UK, so I'm not sure. And also, you mentioned that like disability is a difficult conversation in, in the South Asian community. Is that true of the Sikh community as well because of its emphasis on equality? I think especially amongst South Asian communities and in conversations that uh, involve the government, um, because Sikhs have been sort of branded as, um, you know, freedom fighters, and then that can also get translated into some kind of extreme examples as well. And then when governments uh, talk and meet, then they kind of get, you know, one one version of events so i think yes definitely from that perspective it has translated and you know i really want it to change but i, I don't see how it's going to um you know Sikhs still a minority in india um and, but we're a very large community here in the uk um and i, I would say a, a well-respected community as well that you know if you were to ask anyone on the street they would they would I think know about the work that Sikhs do in terms of their charity work, their server. Um, so that it's great to feel part of that, part of that community. Um, and then the second part of the question, so um, the perception of disability within Sikhism. I think yes, it's 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 not great. I think even though we focus on equality, I think I think perhaps maybe maybe we're slightly more. No, I don't want to say tolerate, but I can't think of another word right now. Um, but I think I think when you have factors such as um, religion and culture, and quite often one can be really opposite of the other, um, it really it really confuses things. And then people then have people think in a certain way based on you know religion or whatever they've seen in their culture or what their culture dictates. And then putting a layer on that, being a British uh, person, you know, quite hard to navigate sometimes. But I think there's such a long way to go for all South Asian um, groups and communities in terms of disability. I've, I've, I've got many friends from lots of different parts of South Asian communities. We, we have the same experiences. We share the same experiences because our culture is so similar. Um, so I think there's, yeah, there's, there's such a long way to go. So you mentioned that like you were used to, or not used to rather, like you had a background for advocacy because of the way Sikhs were treated within the South Asian diaspora. But then it makes me really sad to hear that, I mean, that, you know, people with with certain conditions are treated poorly within the Sikh community. and. You know, I have had personal experience of advocating for one of my identities, but the larger group within that identity then marginalizing one of my other identities. And yeah. I don't know, how do you, do you face that at all? And how do you resolve that in yourself, that you want to be an advocate for Sikh people, but also, you know, if they're treating you poorly because of your condition, then that feels like a betrayal in some, some aspects. Yeah, I mean, you know, the example I gave, it is, it is, it's not the it's not the main experience that I face. It's it's certain cases or certain groups of people, and I have to say it's probably the older generation where I face the most um, 
yeah, face the most sort of experiences like that from. And I think, hey, obviously because of the generation that they are and, um, you know, we're, we're in a totally different time now. Um, so what's happening now is that people of my age are either developing conditions now or they, their children are being born with certain conditions or impairments. So I think now we have... In, in this society, we have certain groups, charities, organisations, they're able to go to help. Let's say someone on my grandmother's age, she wouldn't have had that. She, or if it did exist, she wouldn't have known where to go to get that support. Her experience would have been totally different, which, um, which is what also creates barriers. And then because in our culture, we, we um, are very secretive. I feel like South Asians, you know, we never want to tell people the negative stuff or the, the things that might be a source of shame. Um, those attitudes get then passed down to the British-born children and then that gets passed down to the British-born grandchildren. So that's why I feel there's so many topics that are still taboo in the South Asian community that aren't taboo in other um, communities. That's a lot of work that we do at Asian Woman Festival as well. So we were there to smash um, stigma and stereotypes. Yes, for the Asian Woman Festival, we, we cover all parts of South Asian society and, and community. Um, so we, we're always talking about debut topics as a, as a forefront. I think probably that, that's it's probably what led me to, to actually found Asian Woman Festival because I was so strong in my disability advocacy, but that just that, that wasn't all of me. What about the rest of me as well? And what about everything that shapes who I am and, and what I look like and, you know, the food that I eat? So I think that's probably, that has a lot to do with how Asian Woman Festival was born. That's amazing. Like, um what what was the story for founding that how did you start like how, what gave you that idea then and how did you get the traction so i was actually looking for an event um to go to myself with like like-minded asian women um you know i it got to a point in my life where i have i have lots of different friends lots of different circles um, but growing up, I didn't really have that Asian friends. So I went to a special needs school. Um, the majority of the people were white. So mainly the South Asian people that I knew were, you know, my family, my cousins, or my family friends. Like I didn't, I didn't have too many of my own. And I really wanted to find that and find like-minded people like me. Um, but having said that, I I always felt that my views were a bit different to maybe other people's around me or of a similar age and I felt as a South Asian woman and I was like well surely I can't be the only person that thinks like this like surely I'm not the only person that thinks a woman is only defined by her marriageability or her ability to have kids like there has to be other people out there. where are they I can't find them so when I was actually looking the only events I could find were to um, events like wedding fairs, you know, Asian bridal fairs where you go and book your um, venue, you buy your lenga, you know, you book all your wedding vendors. And I was like, well, I'm not interested in buying a lenga, I'm not interested in booking a wedding, so where else can I go? And I really couldn't find anything else. And then with my background in events, I thought, well, if it doesn't, if it's not already created then why don't I do it why don't I start 
So I really, you know, did not think we would get the traction that we did. And I'm still humbled every single day by how much we're growing, um, especially in an online community now as well. So I created the event. I didn't have any sort of sponsorship or um, any funding. When I approached people about it, they were like, what is this? Why do you need it? Um, so I was like, okay, this is going to be a hard sell. When I started to, you know, organise the festival and what it would look like and what it would include, I went to approach, you know, um, businesses to sponsorship, um, just spoke to other people in the industry as well, but people didn't really get it. They're like, why do you need an Asian woman festival? Why do women need their own space and their own platform? And then I kind of realised, okay, I'm talking to the wrong people. I'm, to I'm talking to people that don't understand the challenges of being an Asian woman in the UK. Um, so I went, I put in my money and I made it happen and we put together a festival. Um, actually, the, the most ironic thing is it was like organising a wedding. It, that's how ironic it was. There was like so much to do. Um, I put together a team as well of, of um, like-minded people that I knew of um, and we made it happen. And I thought, you know, there'd be about 200 people that would turn up. But on the day, we had over a thousand people. And what really, you know, really touched me was that people traveled from abroad to the festival. So we had people travel from Spain, France, Germany, Holland, and even Singapore just to attend this event. I cried about 27 times that day. I was so overwhelmed. And, you know, when you're in the, when you're the person that's organizing everything, you don't, you don't even think about the actual day. You just, busy in organising and making sure everything's as it should be, the speakers are where they need to be, um, because we had a lot going on across the day. Um, so we had an exhibition, we curated an entire exhibition of over 30 artists, um, specifically around the theme of the festival. We had street food, we had a marketplace of 50 stallholders selling all their wares, um, People actually launched businesses at the Asian Woman Festival as well. It was just an incredible, incredible day. But I never thought it would have grown into what it has. And honestly, when I did it, I, I thought, you know what, I'll do the first one and I'll see how it goes. And then I'll decide, you know, if I'm going to carry on with it. Um, but again, I got there and I didn't, didn't realise how much space was being craved by other people as well and how much um other women were looking for it and although at the asian woman festival you know some of that some of our events are exclusively for women or people that identify um as female or all that gender neutral um but then uh, especially our festival is open to everybody it doesn't matter who you are what race you are what gender you are it's open to everybody and we really saw that come through um on the day so that was a real good mark of success for us Damn, that, that sounds really amazing i wish i'd gone i'm gonna go next time you organize it we had to postpone the festival that was due to take place this april because of covid um which we're massively gutted about but uh, hopefully next year so yeah definitely come do you think that you it is part of your role to educate people? Is that a fair burden for people who share your identities to have to take on, along with the marginalization that comes with this? I think first and foremost, you have to pick your battles, and that's what I've learned. I think there's a way in 
there's different ways on and how to get a message across and I think the beauty of social media really helps us do that as well um so I just don't have the energy to go up to everybody individually um like I did start to and say you can't do this or you know this is what you should be doing or did you know it's fact you know so now I've kind of done it in a different way and and through Asian Woman Festival actually um we were doing podcasts we've created dedicated resources for the community um we're highlighting it so i'm doing it through, through broader ways to reach many more people as well um but, but i guess bringing it back to me and my my experience of, of my identity is i think first of all you have to choose whether it's something that it's if that's the role that you want to take on or not because you can find yourself in many situations always being the educator always being the advocate and it's exhausting you know if you're not mentally prepared for that if you're not um yeah if you're not if you're not in that space um and sometimes you are and sometimes you aren't and people have to respect that so i think it's definitely um and again it's something i've had to learn going through life and going through different experiences if i'm in a good place myself and i've got the energy to do it then yes i do um but if i'm not then you know I'm much easier to conversation up with someone at the end of the day, or I just feel like you know what I'm not going to make any difference here. It's just someone that wants to have their say, and you know it'd be like speaking to a brick wall. Then then I choose not to, and I choose to conserve my energy. Um, so I think yeah, it's I think it definitely depends on the the, the topic and the person, um, but but. Thinking about it, I think especially when talking to people and businesses now about the Asian Women Festival, like a year and a half on, I don't, I don't feel I've had those ignorant conversations. Um, you know, we've got some amazing people that want to support, and they're not South Asian, and they don't understand the issues that South Asian women are facing. But when, when you know, we're sat down and we're talking, they're like, wow. I, I would never have known this. This is something I really want to support. So I think that's really encouraging to see, um, you know, whereby it was so hard to get the first festival off the ground and get that support. Now, you know, we're much further into it and we can actually demonstrate what we're doing um, and the impact that we're creating and the people that we're helping. I think that helps, um, it helps us to tell a different story as well. Yeah, I think the key thing is to sort of pick your battles and know thyself to know yeah. when you want to uh, engage. Yeah, this has been such an amazing conversation. Um, I've, I feel like I've learned so much. But like looking forward, if you had one like main hope in terms of in the next five, maybe 10 years uh, to improve like life for people who are South Asian, who sometimes have a condition that people see as disabled? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm often asked questions like this or a similar question to what you've asked. And, you know, I always, I always say I want, I want people to be kind to one another. I think it's a bit lacking a lot of, um, it feels that, that anyway to me personally, especially with everything that I'm seeing happening in the world or in my own community. And I think, wow, if people just stopped and thought, am I being, am I being kind right now? Is this helping? Is this behaviour good or bad behaviour? Um, you know, I think that, that, that is the first thing that I want to 
that that's my first choice. I want people to be more kind. I want people to to look out for one another more. Um, and secondly, I want people to really understand and and get to learn about how marginalised people in their communities as well as wider society are feeling and how exhausting it is to constantly feel like you're having to fight battle just to go about your everyday life because i feel we all have a collective responsibility as a society to change that and we can change it thank you to our listeners for joining us we hope you found this episode as insightful as we did don't forget to hit the follow button to stay tuned on our upcoming episodes you can also find us on Instagram at Rights Collective, on Twitter at The Rights Coal, and on our website, therightscollective.com, to learn more about what we do and our other projects. Show notes, which include all information and links mentioned in the episodes, can also be found on our website. Don't let the conversation end here. Using the hashtag TRCPodcast, let us know how you navigate the complexities of your identities, what works and what doesn't, and what makes you feel most yourself. Before we go, we'd like to thank Inaya Hussain for editing this episode and producing this season of the podcast, and US-based artist and activist Kaki Kazi for the amazing cover art. A huge thank you also to Substeppers, a British-Asian duo, for the music. To listen to the full track and more of their work, check out the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.